to another thrilling adventure of Superman. I am Michael Bradley, your host. This is episode 14 of the show, and this time out, we'll be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 11. It seems like it's been a long time since we've done a comic book story. It's only been two episodes, but still, it's good to get back into those. And the story we're covering this issue is actually not too bad of a story either, so we've got that to look forward to. Before we get into that, though, I've got an email to read. This one is from Steve Rogers, who has written a couple times into the show. I received this on March 22nd in response to episode 12, which covered the second storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper strip. And Steve writes, Hey Michael, just listening to the new episode now, and early pre-Superman Returns Stalker Clark aside, I'm surprised you didn't drop in the classic Lou Grant line concerning Spunk. You know what? You got spunk. Well, I hate spunk. (laughs) Steve, you are absolutely right. And the funny thing is, I watched that clip on YouTube when I was doing my show notes, and right now I'm kicking myself for not working into the show. Ed Asner was always just so blustery and Perry White-like in that show, and it was just great that he was cast as the voice of Perry in All-Star Superman. I still haven't seen that, but I'm really looking forward to seeing him as Perry White, if nothing else. But anyway, thanks Steve for calling me out on that. You, Once again, you are absolutely right, and I should have done that, because that was just spot on. Steve's letter continues. Can't wait for the Batman show to start, though. And then he says I should read the, the next line in an Adam West Batman voice, but as we've seen on the show, I don't do impressions, so I'm just going to read it in my normal voice, and you guys can use your imaginations. Hmm, interesting that it is starting up at the exact same time that the Thrilling Adventures is hitting the same Action Comics issue that hit the stands the exact time Detective Comics number 27 did. Hmm, actually, funny thing, I was all set to shoot you a question about how you were going to cover the world's finest issues, but then remembered you don't need to worry about it for a long time. What is it, issue 75 or so that you get the actual first, excuse me, the first actual team-up? Anyway, it is towards the end of the Golden Age when it gets acknowledged in the stories themselves that the characters share the same universe. Actually, Steve, I won't be covering the Action Comics issue from the month of Batman's debut for a few more episodes yet. But you're right, it is kind of funny how things work out sometimes. Uh, Michael and I really didn't plan for Legends of the Batman to launch at the same time. Uh, We're going to be going at a much quicker pace on that show than I do here, uh, by design. You know, we wanted to go... With this show, I'm, I'm intentionally going by the story and taking my time with each and every story and kind of tracing the history of things, where on Legends of the Batman, we wanted to go by the month, and we're setting out to go at a much quicker pace. But it is funny how things work out sometimes. As for the team-up stuff, the first true team-up between the characters in the comic books was from Superman number 76 in 1952. And then after that, the regular team-up started... Uh, in World's Finest number 71 in 1954. However, the first ever team-up between Superman and Batman came in the Superman radio show in 1945. Uh, So we will definitely be getting to that on Legends of the Batman probably sometime around the end of the second year, uh, assuming we keep keep our weekly schedule, that is. And then there were a couple issues of All-Star Comics, actually, in the early 40s where they both appeared, but it wasn't really a, uh, a team-up per se. 
In those early All-Star issues, the JSA would gather at the beginning and the end of the tale, but then split off for their own solo adventures for the bulk of the story. So, you know, there's one issue where Superman and Batman only appear at the very end, and there's another where they both have a role in the actual story, but they're not teaming up together. But you're right, and it will be a long time for both shows before we get to the actual team-ups. Longer for this one than Legends of the Batman, actually. Um, assuming both shows make it that far, you know, I plan on covering them on both shows. I will be covering them, you know, well, I'll be coming at them from a different perspective on each show. So it'll be interesting to see how that colors my opinion on the stories. Plus, there will be a significant amount of time between when Michael and I look at them over there and when I get to them on this show. So it'll be interesting to see how that difference in time affects how I see the story as well. Because, you know, I'll tell you, there's a lot of stories I'm finding that, and not just necessarily for this show, but there's a lot of stories that I've read even just a few years ago that when I reread them now, you know, I see them differently, whether it's because of my age or my changing tastes. But anyway, thanks again, Steve, for the email. Just as a reminder, if anyone else has any feedback or comments on the show, feel free to send those to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. Alright, so, getting into Action Comics number 11. The book has a cover date of April 1939 and was released sometime around March 7th of that year. That puts it coming out about two-thirds of the way through the newspaper story that we'll be looking at next week. It doesn't have a lot of bearing on either story, but that's just a bit of perspective for you. It also has the normal 10-cent cover price and 64 pages of content. The cover is by Fred Gardner, and it shows a battle cruiser colliding with a submarine that has surfaced from beneath the water. There's a flag that's flying from the bow of the ship that has a yellow field and a green saltier. I did a little research, but I couldn't find any information about what, if anything, that flag means. So, I don't know if it's just a random design or if it has, if it's a, you know, a signal flag of some sort. Um, if anyone is more knowledgeable on maritime signal flags than I am, let me know. This cover, I think, is okay. It isn't terrible, but it's really nothing spectacular in and of itself. It does have the distinction, however, of being the last Action Comics cover for a very long time without an image of Superman on it. It won't be the last cover to not have Superman as the main feature, but starting two issues from now, 
they're going to add a little circular graphic on the cover that shows Superman, you know, busting a set of chains with his chest. Um, so with that added to the cover, Superman will at least have a visual presence on each cover, even if he's not the main feature. Though, as I've mentioned before, Superman has been at least mentioned on every cover since issue number 9. The 13-page Superman feature inside the book has been alternatively titled The Black Gold Oil Well and Superman and the Black Gold Swindle. Vin Sullivan is credited as the editor for the story. Jerry Siegel, who's back to signing as Jerome Siegel for this story, was the writer, of course. And on the art, the Grand Comics database credits pencils to Paul Cassidy, as well as Joe Schuster. Our opening splash this time out depicts Superman leaping high above the city onto the ledge of a building. I'm not sure what he's really meant to be doing here exactly, but it's apparent right from the start, right from this opening page, that there's another hand on the art. It's still clearly Schuster, but there's a different feel to it than previous issues, especially in the lettering, which leads me to believe that the GCD credits about Paul Cassidy are on the right track. The intro blurb is a little shorter this time out, but still conveys the same ideas. It reads, Racing faster than a bullet, leaping over skyscrapers, lifting and rending huge weights, possessing an impenetrable skin, springing great distances, these are the assets which aid Superman, champion of the helpless and oppressed, in his unceasing battle against evil and injustice. So, our story begins at police headquarters, where Clark Kent and another nameless reporter are berating the poor police sergeant for a news scoop. But the Sarge tells them that there hasn't been a lot going on other than a few drunks. Thankfully, curbing what might have otherwise been a pretty short story, the phone rings. The sergeant takes the call and tells the person on the other end of the line that he'll send officers and an ambulance right over to take, to take care of the problem. When he hangs up, the no-name reporter inquires about the call, and the chief replies, Just a routine case. Guy commits suicide in a broker's office. What exactly is routine about that? Thankfully, Clark feels the same way I do, and decides to look into it. Later, at the investment offices of Meek and Bronson, an officer and Clark speak with the brokers and learn that the victim had lost quite a bit of money investing. Because of his losses, the man came to their office and killed himself, despite Bronson's effort to try and stop him. Clark inspects the body and finds the victim is still clutching shares of black gold oil well stock in his hand. Just then, a man busts in. And the guy looks exactly like the no-name reporter from earlier, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense that it would be him. Anyway, the guy busts into the office and begins raving about how now Meek and Bronson have murder on their hands as well as thievery. Meek nervously tells the officer that the man's suicide can't possibly be their fault, and Bronson tries to give the guy the bum's rush. Clark ushers the guy out the door while he continues to rage against the brokers. Once outside, Clark asks him why he blames the brokers for the death, and the guy tells him that it's because Meek and Bronson have bilked himself and hundreds of others out of their life savings by selling worthless stock. Since there's apparently no war or violent crime anywhere in the world, Clark decides that a possible stock scheme is exactly the type of thing Superman should be spending his time on, and decides to look into it. And later that evening, Clark dons the uniform of the ever-awesome Superman and takes off into the night. Arriving at the offices, Clark forces open the window, not by smashing it, but by breaking the lock and climbing inside, and begins rifling through the filing cabinet until he finds a list of names of people who have purchased the black gold oil stock. 
The next day, Clark poses as a man named Homer Ramsey and pays a visit to one of the names on the list and tells the man that he's interested in buying his black gold stock. The man warns him that the stock is worthless, but Clark slash Homer tells him that he has his own reasons for wanting it and offers to pay the guy $5,000 for his 50 shares. The guy jumps at the offer, saying he'll actually make a profit at that price and takes Clark's check. And it's a bit odd that he would give him a check when he's posing as someone other than Clark Kent. Whose name exactly was on that check? Was it Clark's, or did Superman set up an account under a fake name? It's never really addressed. Anyway, Clark then visits all the other victims of the stock scheme and buys up their stock as well, once again showing us that reporters in the Superman stories make far more money than the reporters in the real world. <laughs> Clark does remark, though, that doing so has cleaned out his savings, and he hopes his plan will work, or else he'll be the one to suffer. Later that evening, in a neat panel that shows him actually outrunning a train, Superman runs towards the town where the black gold oil is allegedly being drilled, and the next morning he tries to apply for a job at the oil rig, but the watchman just laughs him off. When Clark asks about what exactly is so funny, the watchman tells him that there's been no work done at the rig for months. In fact, no one even knows if there's any oil to drill or not, because the promoters have found selling the stock to be so profitable that they never even bothered to do any drilling. Later that evening, Superman returns to the rig and catches the watchman by surprise as he makes his rounds. He either chokes the guy out or snaps his neck. It's not really clear by the art, but hopefully it was just choking him out, because he does actually express regret at having to do it. Anyway, the watchman out of the way, Superman gets down to business. Superman begins assembly and construction on the oil rig, adjusting the various drills and shafts, then waits as they drill into the earth. Hours and hours pass, and the rig drills deeper and deeper through the night. Superman begins to give up hope of actually striking oil when suddenly a huge explosion shoots a gusher of oil streaming into the air. Satisfied with the job well done, Superman heads back to town as workmen rush in to try and stem the gusher. And I wonder where all these workmen are coming from because if the rig wasn't even in operation, why in the world is there a crew there? But anyway, one of the men places a call back to Meek and Bronson in Cleveland. And this is the second time that we've gotten a reference to Superman operating out of Cleveland. The first being in Action Comics number 2 when Clark was in St. Monte and wired his photos back to the evening news in Cleveland. That's usually been regarded as a mistake because they'd established in the first issue that Clark worked for the Daily Star. And I'm sure the part about the evening news was an oversight. But with this second reference to Cleveland, I can't help but wonder if Siegel didn't originally intend for Superman to be operating out of Cleveland, or if he was just going from what he knew. Like I said, this is our second reference to the city, and so far, no other city has been named. So that's kind of interesting. We're inching ever closer to when Metropolis is first named, and I actually tracked that down the other day, and we're, we're really not too far off from it. But the second reference to Cleveland is interesting. And this is exactly the type of thing that I was hoping to discover when I decided to do the show. How things are coming together, how it, and how it evolved. So, even though it really doesn't mean much in the overall scheme of things, it makes me happy when I ferret out a little nugget of, inf of information like this. Anyway, one of the workmen at the oil rig calls back and tells Meek about the gusher. 
Meat gets very excited and tells Bronson that it's producing a thousand bar barrels of oil a day. Bronson is shocked since he thought the well was a dud, and the two begin to celebrate. However, Bronson points out that, you know, all the people that bought stock in the rig and says they have to go buy that stock back before people find out that there actually is money in the well. So, Meek and Bronson pay a visit to all the people that had purchased stock. They explain to the folks that they've realized that, that you know, they lost money and that they're generously offering to buy the stock back at a much lower rate, of course. Unfortunately for them, they get the same story from each victim, that they've already sold their stock to someone named Homer Ramsey, unbeknownst to them, really Clark Kent. One of the victims had given them his card, so Meek and Bronson pay a visit to Ramsey's office. Interesting how Clark was able to set this all up so quickly. I mean, we've got, you know, checking accounts under a fake name, renting an office, furnishing it. <sighs> anyway, they pay a visit and try to buy the stocks, but Ramsey slash Clark refuses to sell. Meek tries to convince him that he'll lose all his money, but Clark stands firm and finally they leave with Bronson saying that it's clear that they just can't do business with him. Once back in their car, Meek says they've got to get the stocks back and wonders what they can do since he's refusing to sell. And Bronson replies that there are ways. You know, ways. Again, if this villain had a mustache, he would be twirling it. Meek catches on that Bronson must be talking about guys like Louis the Rat and Nate the Snake, apparently muscle for hire, but pleased with Bronson, saying that he'd promised that they'd never use them again. But Bronson says that they've got no other choice because they've got to get the stock back, and it's going to take a little <clears throat> persuasion. Meek and Bronson's limo drops them off at a rundown motel, and they walk inside. And as they do, Superman watches from the rooftop across the street, wondering what they're up to. And this is an indication that Siegel's still not being real consistent with Superman's powers, because we've seen him use his superhearing on a couple of occasions, but here the text indicates that Superman doesn't know what they're talking about. And we'll come back to this in just a minute, so keep that in mind. Inside the hotel, Bronson knocks a special rhythm on room 303. Inside, two particularly thuggish-looking brutes answer the door and welcome their quote-unquote clients inside. Bronson tells the thugs that they've got a job, but Louis the Rat says their rates have gone up to $5,000 excuse me, $500 per job. You know, job. Bronson hands $250 to Nate and says that they'll get the rest after Homer Bailey is taken care of. Nate says they'll take care of things, but asks what they've got against Bailey. Bronson gets all indignant that they dare ask such a question, and says it's none of their business. He hands Nate his card, and says next time they talk, he wants news that Homer Ramsey is dead. Actually, he screams that last bit. Hopefully this cheap motel has unusually thick walls or no other occupants. Cut to outside, where Superman is still just kind of, you know, hanging out on the roof, and... He's been using his X-ray eyesight and super-acute hearing, according to the narration, to monitor what's going on inside the hotel. Now, again, this is interesting because he's using his super-hearing when, less than a page before, he didn't seem to have any type of enhanced hearing abilities. And this is also the first mention of Superman's X-ray vision. And that comes hot on the heels of the first use of his telescopic vision in the newspaper strip we looked at last episode. 
And for what it's worth, if you compare the dates of that particular strip to the date when this issue may have come out, there's about a month separating them. But we're seeing a lot of expansion on Superman's powers here, even if Seal isn't so consistent on using them, even within the same story. We've still got a long way to go before Superman hits that nigh-invulnerable level of Silver Age power that people are familiar with, but he's clearly inching there little by little, and the character's only been around for a little under a year. I think that's important to note because a lot of people... I think they don't realize how quickly his powers developed and grew. And that could be because they weren't always used consistently, but we'll see as we go on with more and more stories. So, to get back to this story, Meek and Bronson hired the thugs to kill Homer Ramsey, and Superman overheard the exchange, and he decides that he needs to teach them a lesson. So, when Meek and Bronson exit the hotel, they find their limo, torn to shreds, crumpled, and lying in pieces on the road. Bronson demands to know what happened, but the driver says that he stepped away for a smoke, and when he returned, found the car like that. I'd say, as far as the lessons Superman has taught people so far, that's pretty mild. Not to mention hilarious. A little later, Homer slash Clark is still in his fake office when he is paid a visit by Nick and Louie, who take him hostage at gunpoint and force him into a waiting car. They drive him out to a deserted road, then force him out of the car. Nick fires on Homer with a machine gun, striking him several times. He collapses to the ground, and Louie walks up with a pistol, shooting him in the head for good measure. But as the thugs turn to leave, Clark reaches up and grabs Louie's ankle and tosses him football-style into Nick, apparently knocking both men out. A little later, Bronson is at home, just hanging out reading the paper, when he hears a knock at the door. He opens the door to find Nick and Louie both unconscious on his front stoop, along with a note that reads, Compliments of Homer Ramsey. As the thugs revive, Bronson demands to know what happened. They say that uh, they gave Ramsey everything they had, but he's somehow still alive. He must not even be human, they cry. Bronson says that's nothing but ridiculous nonsense, and sends the thugs on their way. He then calls Meek and arranges to meet with him so he can share the whole story. Clark, still in disguise as Ramsey, watches as Bronson hails a cab and starts to leave. But as the cab passes by, Clark leaps from the curb into the seat alongside a very surprised Bronson and tells them that he's decided to sell all his black gold oil stock for one million dollars. One million dollars. Bronson says that that's madness to pay that price, but Clark tells him that that's his offer and he can take it or leave it. When Bronson meets with Meek a little later, Meek agrees with him that it's insane to pay that much for the stock, but Bronson changes his tune and says that they'll make several million on the oil, so they've got no choice but to pay the money. He then calls Ramsey and arranges a meeting. Later, they meet at Ramsey's office and exchange the money for the stocks, only to reveal to Ramsey on the way out that he just got suckered, then gloat over the money that they've come into on the way back outside. The story then cuts to a little later, back at Clark's apartment, with a very creepy panel that shows Clark sitting on the edge of his bed in just the red Superman trunks. Or maybe Clark wears red underwear. I don't know, and I'd really rather not think about it. So we're just going to move on from that part of the story. Anyway, back at his apartment, Clark sheds the identity of Homer Ramsey and brings back the costumed form of Superman. Later that evening, 
Barton is getting ready for bed, wearing an awesome set of green pajamas, and relishing over the profitable day, when suddenly there's a mighty crash, and in through the wall busts Superman. With some short words for Barton, he grabs the crook by his belt and leaps off into the night. He continues to taunt Barton all the way to Meek's house before busting in and grabbing him as well. With the criminals in tow, Superman jumps out the window and races towards the oil rig, continuing to belittle and mock the two men en route. When they get to the oil rig, Superman lets the two men go, then proceeds to begin tearing the oil rig apart, cracking the drills over his knees like twigs, and basically just wrecking the entire structure. And then there's a guy who's just standing there in a suit. I have no idea who he's supposed to be or why he's there in the middle of the night, but Meek and Barton tell him to do something. Stop him! He's demolishing the well, and it's our property. Don't just stand there like a statue. Do something! And the guy just turns around and says, What can I do against him? And we never see him again. I don't know. It just makes me laugh because it's so random. Anyway, Superman's destructive swath wrecks through the mechanism, causing the oil to flow freely, gushing high into the air. He continues his rampage on the oil rig until it collapses to the ground, totally demolished. Superman then smirks and lights a torch as the workers from the oil rig rush towards him. Superman warns them back before throwing the torch onto the oil-soaked wreckage, lighting the entire thing on fire. Yes, we can officially add arson to the list of Superman's many wacky pranks. And by wacky pranks, I of course mean felonies. As Bronson and Meek fret and cry over their lost fortune, they ask Superman why he would do such a thing. And Superman responds by literally wagging his finger in their faces and telling them that, telling them that they got what they deserve. He then warns them to stop selling phony stock or he'll have to pay them another visit. As Superman heads back to town, he flips and whirls gleefully through the air, relishing in his power and celebrating that he was able to give the scam artists their due. Later, back at the Daily Star, the editor looks over the front page of the paper with a story about the oil rig going up in flames, and he comments that it looks as if Superman might have had a hand in it, to which Clark agrees that it certainly does. And if this had been one of the Fleischer cartoons or an episode of George Reeves' Adventures of Superman, Clark's final line there, I'm sure, would have been followed by a turn and a wink to the camera. You know, I really like this story quite a bit. I don't have too all much to say about it, but I thought it was pretty enjoyable. It's basically the same type of story that we've seen so far, but Superman's and Clark's actions seemed a bit more logical not to mention legal, than previous. Except for the part where he, you know, torches the oil rig. I made fun earlier uh, about Clark looking into the stock scheme, but at least it turned out to be something crooked. And it still shows him handling the, you know, the ills of society and sticking up for the little guy, which is something that I really like in these older stories. And I like the way that he went about solving it, too. Rather than going right to roughing up the bad guy or, you know, delving into some Rube Goldbergian plot to teach them the error of their ways, we see Clark being a bit more stealthy, you know, first by getting a list of names and then buying up all the stock and then turning the tables on Bronson and Meek. Although, I'm left wondering how he decided that the stock sales were in fact bad. They weren't making any money, sure, but that doesn't mean it was a crooked sale. He just goes and buys all the stock and then finds out that the rig isn't even in operation. 
So, if there hadn't been any oil there, he would have been out a lot of money, wouldn't he? That's a pretty major plot hole, I guess. And they did sort of acknowledge it with Clark uh, commenting to himself that he would lose money if his plan didn't work out. But it still doesn't make a lot of sense why he would go buy the stock before finding out if buying the stock would even help him with his plan. So yeah, it's still sort of a plot hole. As is the idea that Superman was able to set up the fake identity of Ramsey, you know, with the checking account and the office and all that so quickly. But still, I enjoyed this story quite a bit. One other thing I wanted to note was that I'm surprised that Siegel didn't re reveal that the suicide victim at the beginning wasn't actually instead murdered by Bronson and Meek, or by the thugs that were hired to kill Homer, slash Clark. There's a couple subtle hints in the story that make me think that might have been the case, even if it's never outright said. And, you know, it's, it would have been a plausible addition to the story, and I'm sure if this story was ever redone in a comic from the last 20 years, that probably would have been added on. But like I said, it's never outright stated in the story. And of course, this story is very historic for introducing Superman's X-ray vision. With that, the super hearing, the telescopic vision, shades of flight, powers-wise, he's certainly growing ever closer to the Superman that most folks were familiar with. We've still not seen any hints of heat vision or super breath yet, though, so we'll have to keep watch for those. My favorite part of the story, though, was that single panel on the last page where we see Superman acrobatting through the air. It just shows Superman having fun with his abilities and enjoying the freedom that gives him. I mean, if you and I had the ability to fly, or leap as Superman does here, I'm sure we would do the same thing whenever we had a great day, you know? It just humanizes the character, and it's nice to see Superman having fun like that from time to time with the things that he can do. Art-wise, there's a decent effort here from Schuster and likely Cassidy. Lots of great expressions and details. On the final page, when Superman lights the torch before setting the oil on fire, you can see a very subtle smirk on his face. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he is enjoying doing it. So, yeah, decent art. Not the best we've seen in a story so far, but far from the worst. Uh, Paul Cassidy was really good on the strip, and he's only getting his feet wet here, so I look forward to some upcoming stories where he clearly has more of a hand in it and the, uh, you know, the artwork we get there. For those keeping track of the shield's ever-changing look, this issue, it's back to the pentagon shape with the yellow field and the red S, except for a few panels where it's miscolored as all yellow. So that's a switch from the last few issues where it's been pretty consistently the solid yellow triangle. Before we close out our look at the story, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the ad at the very end of the story. It's got Superman's smiling face and advertises more startling adventures of Superman, Man of Steel, and Action Comics. I really like these ads that they stick at the end of the story. Um, I don't know what it is about them, but I really should start scanning these and putting them in a gallery at the site, and I may actually do that at some point, so just keep an ear on future episodes for that. Speaking of reprints, this story has been reprinted twice, like several of the previous ones. First in Superman the Action Comics Archives Volume 1 and Superman Chronicles Volume 1. Other features this time out are the standard fare. We've got Scoop Scanlon, Pep Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, 
Chuck Dawson, and last but not least, Zaytara in a story called The Sea Ghost. Also in this issue is a one-page filler by Fred Schwab, and there's nothing unusual about that. Uh, they had these partial-page gag strips and other fillers all throughout books of this era. But above the filler is two lines of text that read, The Batman. The thrilling new adventure strip starts in the May issue of Detective Comics. Don't miss it. There's no images or anything with it, just those two lines of text. But still, this makes, I think, the first mention of Batman in any published DC comic, which is pretty cool. There's also an ad promoting the first issues of movie comics and all-American comics. This is the first full-page ad in Action Comics advertising specific issues of other books. We've seen general ads for the line of titles or an occasional ad for you know when a new feature starts. But in the coming months, we're going to start seeing more and more of these ads that advertise other features and books, specifically the All-American titles, which I will actually talk about more in just a second. And really, we're going to start seeing more and more ads for non-comic book merchandise in these books, too, over the coming months. Uh, as the popularity of the books grew, the more and more companies and products started advertising in them. Other books out this month were More Fun Comics No. 42, which had the final Red Cook Patrol strip by Craig Flessel. There was also Detective Comics No. 26, the last Batman-less issue of that title. And there was Adventure Comics No. 37, with a sort of new strip by Tom Hickey called Skip Schooler. And I say sort of new because that strip carries over in part from Hickey's Golden Dragon strip that ended last issue. March 1939 also saw the beginning of All-American Publications, the third company that, along with National and Detective, will eventually merge to form DC Comics proper. All-American was founded by M.C. Gaines after getting funding from Harry Donenfeld and taking both Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz on as partners. All-American was a completely separate company with a separate staff and offices and all that, but because of their close ties to National, they used the DC logo on their books for marketing and distribution. This, they will eventually make a clean break in 1945 and use their own logo, but only for about six months when they'll again start using the DC logo, and then eventually they're completely absorbed into DC in the late 40s. So, long story short, All American is a completely separate company, but for all intents and purposes, they are DC. All-American Publications kicked off their line of books with two 64-page titles, All-American Comics and Movie Comics, the former being the book from where the company derived its name. Movie Comics was a book that adapted movies or serials from the time. The art was a pseudo-fumetti style where they took stills from the movie, did some airbrushing on them for a more comic booky look, and then added dialogue with the normal comic book style speech bubbles. Highlights of this first issue include adaptations of Gunga Din, starring Cary Grant, and Son of Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Basil Rathbone, as well as the first part of an adaptation of Scout to the Rescue, which was a universal serial that starred a young Jackie Cooper, a.k.a. Perry White from the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. There's also an adaptation of a movie called Fisherman's Wharf, which... I've never heard of, but I looked it up on the Internet Movie Database, and one of the characters is named Beppo, so that made me laugh. 
All American Comics was much more standard comic book fare. It features a mix of new material and newspaper strip reprints. The new material in this first issue includes Scribbly by Sheldon Mayer and Hop Harrigan by John L. Bloomer. Hop Harrigan is an aviator character that would go on to have a radio series and a movie serial in the 1940s, but it mostly faded into obscurity after World War II ended and the, the aviator trend fell out of fashion. Also in this issue is the debut of Red, White, and Blue, drawn by artist Bill White and written by Jerry Siegel, which makes this his first new creation since Superman's debut. The strip starred a trio of soldiers, Marine Sergeant Red Dugan, Whitey Smith of the Army, and Navy Officer Bluey Blue, who united to battle the enemies of the United States. Also of note this month is Motion Picture Funnies Weekly Number 1. This was a 36-page black-and-white comic book produced by First Funnies Incorporated, and it was intended to be a free giveaway in movie theaters. The idea never really took off, though, and only a few of the first, and ultimately only, issue were printed. But the book is notable for featuring the first appearance of Bill Everett's Namor the Submariner. With plans for Motion Picture Funnies Weekly changed, Everett would later take the character and use him in Marvel Comics No. 1, the first comic book from Martin Goodman's Timely Comics, which was a predecessor to, as the book's name might have given away, Marvel Comics. And I will talk a little more about that down the road a few episodes when that particular issue comes out. They are the first and best team of mystery men ever to assemble for the cause of justice. The heroes that have been part of their ranks are legendary. They fight for America and for democracy, and yet no one has devoted a podcast to their exploits. Until now. Unfortunately, it's hosted by these guys. I don't care what Julia Schwartz says. Yeah, league sounds like a baseball team. I hate baseball. So there you go. Um, first F-bomb of the show. Um, How did you not... beat me to the first F-bomb of the show? Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey present Tales of the Justice Society of America. Fridays at twotruefreaks.libson.com Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Man of Steel, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weeder every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. that does it for another episode i want to thank you for joining me this time out and thanks again to steve rogers for the email next week and the week after actually we'll be back to the newspapers for the third and fourth storylines from the daily strips so i hope you will all come back for that in the meantime if you have any feedback or questions or comments on the show or if you just want to drop a line to say hello the email address is thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com 
There's also the website located at www.greatcrypton.com where you can see show notes, images, and links related to the stories discussed on the show as well as some other Superman-related postings from time to time. Also at the site, you'll find the links to the show's RSS feed. And if you subscribe that way, please note, as I mentioned last episode, that that feed has changed. The old feed wasn't picking up all the posts, so... If you subscribe that way, please go over to the site and get the link to the new feed, because the old one may not be up forever. There's also the link to the show's Facebook page, where you can get updates and leave feedback, as well as the link to iTunes, if you'd rather subscribe that way. If you do use iTunes, I welcome any and all iTunes reviews, because it really does help people find the show. Uh, The podcast is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which now has a much shorter URL, courtesy of J. David Weider of Superman Forever Radio, and that is supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The old URL still works, so there's no need to update bookmarks or anything, because the network is still hosted at the Fortress of Bailitude, but the new URL is just a little easier to remember, so... A big thank you to Michael for hosting the network and to David for getting the URL set up. It's, it's really nice to have a central hub for all the great Superman podcasts that are out there. I also invite you to check out my new show that I'm doing with my pal Michael Kaiser. It's called Legends of the Batman, where we are covering everything Batman from the beginning. The uh, first episode and probably the second episode will be up by the time you hear this, so hop on over to BatmanLegends.com and check that out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks. I'll talk to you later. Goodbye. You know what? You got spunk. Well, I hate spunk. (laughs) 